0: Let us pray together. Here we walk on holy ground, our Father. Help us to humble ourselves as we should. Grant that this truth humbles us as it should. We're about to gaze on the eternal, uncreated, infinite glory of your Son, who was born as a man on that Christmas morning. Born as as a man on that Christmas morning, but his birth is not his beginning. As Micah 5.2 says, his goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient days. Dazzle our eyes and thrill our hearts as we behold his eternal glory today. We pray for Christ's sake and for his glory. Amen. Well, you see, we've got three sermons, as I said in an email I just sent out to you. Three sermons centering around Philippians chapter 2, taking us through these uh, Christmas weeks. And uh, the title today is Christ Before Christmas, although it, it might be better called it uh, Christ Before Conception. We use the word Christmas, and I've got to admit, I, I wince when I say it because it literally means Christ's Mass And Christians don't worship a mass, but we know what we mean by it. Nativity just hasn't caught on as much, except in Spanish, Uh, but not so much in English, to call Christmas nativity. But the point is, we're talking about Christ not just before Christmas when he was born, but because that was not his human beginning. His human beginning was at Conception. God took on human nature at the conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But we're looking at him before even that moment. Because that moment of conception was not the beginning of Christ as it was of his humanity. Neither birth nor conception really take us to the heart of this mysterious person Paul takes us there, though, in this section, and I I want to show you, I want us all to see that he does it not as a lesson in theology proper, not just like a lecture on the doctrine of Christ, but he makes it a very personal point and a personal point of application. To us, um, this is the danger of being so familiar with a section of Scripture that that we lose its connection to the rest of the book in which it sets, and sometimes to the rest of Scripture. So let's make sure we don't do that today. And first, all, we'll simply begin together uh, with exposition, Roman numeral one, the exposition of the verses we're focusing on today, which is Philippians two verses five and six. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this letter to the Philippians is a happy letter. The the letters are in different moods, you know. The letter to the Galatians is in a very alarmed mood, and it starts off that way. But this letter to to the Philippians basically is Paul writing to say thank you for support to a church that that had a lot going well with it. It was a church of uh, people who loved the Lord and who uh, were united in the gospel. Uh, A real gospel work had begun there, and these were all good things. But having people in it, the church had problems. You see, churches are fine until people get there, and I include the pastor when I say that. Uh, It's the people that make churches problematic. It's not the concept of the church. So this being a church, though it was a a healthy church in a great many ways, it had problems, and Paul addresses these in a very charitable way. Uh, We see it in his emphases. I just really want to hit in chapter 1, if you could turn your Bibles there, and uh, look at uh, the beginning of the section we're in in chapter 2. It really begins in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul's talked about his imprisonment and talked about a number of things. But he says in Philippians 1, 27, and I'll mostly, mostly be using the Legacy Standard Bible, he says, "...only live your lives," interesting word, polituista, "...act as citizens or conduct your affairs in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." Now, if you just cut that off, your mind could go in a number of different directions. What particular manner of worthy living did Paul have in mind? Well, we don't have to guess. Read on. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances that you are, ah, here's his concern. Here's what he wants them to do. That you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind contending together for the faith of the gospel. So there it is. His great concern for them is that they have unity, but I want you to notice very carefully—not unity for unity's sake, not unity because they share the same skin color, ethnicity, or hobbies. What's the center of their unity? It's the faith of the gospel. It's Jesus Christ, in short. They're to unify around the gospel and in their defense of the gospel. Uh, a lot—the the mark of a false teacher often is that he promotes unity. Period. Just unity. Unity around him usually is what it, what it boils down to. But uh, the unity we see in Scripture is never just unity and not unity for secular purposes. Paul doesn't say unify because, you know, you're stronger if you're united or all the things we, we might hear a motivational speaker say or a politician say. No, he wants them united around the faith of the gospel. Well, not just united around it, but contending for it. So, in other words, not just to a, a picture of people just passively... Centering around something and staring at it, but more people shoulder to shoulder, contending for that, actively serving and moving the borders out for the faith of the gospel. So it's a unity that is around Christ and around His gospel. And chapter two takes on that thought. So this is the beginning of the imperative. The first imperative is: I want you to conduct your affairs in a manner worthy of the gospel, and that requires that you have one mind and that one spirit. Centered around the faith of the gospel for which you all contend together. That is the context, number one, that uh, letter A, that is the context of the section we are studying. So perhaps you'd not noticed that before, as I had not noticed it uh, for many years, that this poem or hymn, whatever it exactly was about Christ, that begins in verse 5, is not just a free-floating thought about Jesus. This is in the context of him urging them to unite around the gospel and contend together for it. He's going to really get into that now. As we see the particular commands, letter B, the particular commands in this section, verses 1 through 4. So this gets down street level. This gets down to the nitty-gritty of what is required to contend together for the faith of the gospel. First, we have the premise of the commands in verse 1. These are the things that all believers share in Christ. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Well, obviously the way he says it and, and the way the, the grammar is phrased, he's not saying, I don't know if there are these things. <laughs> he's saying that since there are these things, since these things are true of all of you, since I know that if you're a Christian, these truths are your truths. And, and what are those truths? Uh, you could take them as four co- coordinate separate things that are all true. I kind of see it as that the first one is an umbrella category and the next three open that up. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, anything in Christ that encourages us to live godly lives, well, indeed there is. And and what is that? It's the three that follow. If there is any consolation of love, the love of God for us sinners gives us great comfort. And that is very encouraging in Christ. Is it not, amen, to know that Christ loves us and nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Is that not consoling and encouraging? Indeed it is. Secondly, he says if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, and what he most likely has in mind here is the fellowship the Spirit creates. You can read more about that in Ephesians 4, that the Holy Spirit has given us a bond of unity. That he means us to be one body with one Lord, centered around one faith, entered into by one baptism. He means us to be, uh, uh, as he says in Ephesians 4, striving to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You remember that? Striving to preserve the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit has given you this unity, so do your utmost to keep this unity intact in the bond of peace. So he says that same idea in different words here. He says, if any fellowship of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit has indeed given us grounds for fellowship. You look around and you say, we're not the same age, we don't have the same skin color, we don't have the same hair color or quantity of hair. And I say, praise the Lord. That sounds like a family of God. Because what unites us is not those things. You can find groups that are united by those things, right? That's the way the world does it. That's the way animals do it. You know, you can't put a different ant in the wrong ant colony. But that's not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is, you could say, a a bunch of dissimilars united with one commonality, and that commonality is the Lord Jesus, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. So if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, and finally, if any, affection and compassion, the tender mercies that that the Holy Spirit uh, develops and grows in our hearts. These are things all Christians share. Uh, which Christians? The mature Christians or the immature Christians? Which Christians? The very well-taught Christians or the beginning Christians? Which Christians? The old Christians or the young ones? The, the slaves or the free? The high class or the low class? Which ones? All of them. Because this is to be a Christian. These are our realities. So does this give us something in common? Oh, it gives us a great deal in common. Uh, and a great many can bear witness to the fact that when they became Christians, they felt a, a deeper bond with their church family than with their natural family because of all the divisions and, and, and uh, hostilities sometimes that go on in natural blood families. So these are things that all Christians share. That's the premise. What he's going to call them to rests on the fact that this is true of all of us. And now we come to the particulars in verse uh, 4. Verses 2 through 4, pardon me. Beginning with the core command. This is his core command. And isn't it lovely the personal way he puts this? He doesn't simply say, do this because you should. Which he could, right? It, that is a perfectly good thing for a pastor to say. And certainly uh, an apostle can certainly say, this is, this is the command of the Lord. You need to do that. But, but notice the way he puts it. Fulfill my joy. In other words, it would make me so happy if you would do this, because he cares about them. He's, he's not just uh, writing uh, uh, distant thoughts to a distant group for whom he feels nothing. He cares. He says in, in other places that his churches are his joy and crown, that, that he, he lives and dies depending on how the churches do. He's, his heart is wrapped up in their health and well-being. And so he says, y- make, you want to make me happy you know, what I'd really like for Christmas is that you do this, fulfill my joy, that you think the same way. Now this is positive. Think the same way, and the ways you do it is what follows. He says, first of all, and he, he, he he alternates positive and negative. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. So first he says positively, "How do I think the same way? What are you talking about?" Well, by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. So, holding together a unity of love, a unity of spirit, and the purpose that the Lord Jesus gave to all of us as a church. And then negatively, he says, "Doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory." Don't be motivated by your own little agenda and your own little, I demand that they have things this way and if I can't have things this way, well then I'll just sit in a corner and pout or I'll just abstain or I'll just whatever till everybody knows how unhappy. No, he says do nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory. And then positively again, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Then negatively, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, and then positively, but also for the interests of others. Now, it's very tempting to spend the whole sermon on that, but this is not really our focus. This is all kind of introduction to the focus of the sermon. So I've got to keep myself moving along, but I do need to say to you that the Philippian mm, culture... Of the city of Philippi was a, a very class conscious uh, culture. People were very much aware of where they fit in the castes of the day and, and It was very much their ambition to be in the higher classes and and they, they jealously sought the power and the elevation of being in in higher classes and, and that gave them a, a, sen- a certain superiority and a control over those who were underneath them that was just that was just the 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 air they breathe that was just the the muzak in their elevators you know it was just the atmosphere of that church and do you see how all of that is the death of christian fellowship do you see that to be motivated by ambition and pride and sense of where i fit and where you fit which is always lower or if it's higher well then i want what you got and i'll take it from you if i can Uh, that's fine in the world, but that is the death of Christian fellowship. That is nothing like Christian fellowship. It's it's the opposite of everything he said. Well, that's why he said it, because they are called to a culture opposite than the one that they're living in. Not like us, right? Oh, no, exactly like us. (laughs) Exactly like us. There's a few little different parsley swigs at the edge of the plate, but it's the same idea. We're called to a very different culture than the one we live in, and we need never to forget it. But these traits of of their society were the death of Christian fellowship, and they need to be mortified. They they can't be uh, assuaged or negotiated with. They need to be killed. They need to be put to death. They need to be put to death and replaced with something very different. See, there's, there's going to be no contending for the faith of the gospel shoulder by shoulder if you're measuring the height of your shoulder relative to the person next to you and whether you really want to be shoulder to shoulder with that person, you know, with one of them. That's, that, that, may, that renders this impossible. And so, so it, it must be something that they target and are aware of and consciously put to death and replace with the Christian graces that they have in Christ and, and to which Christ calls them. And, and even more than that, as I'll show you in just a moment, than just that he calls them to them. So it was a problem. It's still a problem as as long as there are people who say, well, I don't want to go to this or that meeting because I don't like the way they pray or because I think they're slower-witted than I or there are people there who don't know as much as I or whatever. You know, as long as these sorts of things are alive, well, it's still a problem. That and a, a dozen other forms of it, a hundred other forms of it. But see, what I want us to think about now, and this really brings us to the text we're focusing on, how does Paul counter this? How is he going to call them from the mindset of their culture to the mind that they're called to have, the mind they are to have in Christ. Will he shame them and tell them how ridiculous it is for sinners to think that way? Well, that makes sense, right? I mean, that would be valid enough. That would make sense to do that. Or uh, will he shame them and or will he appeal to them pragmatically? And only say, look, you know, if we have any thought of bringing the gospel anywhere other than our four walls, we got to work together you just that's just logistics if we're fighting each other then we're never going to does he do that that would make sense right you can understand that you'd think oh that's a that's a valid point but is that the way he does it how does he do it he does it the way he always does it he points them to Christ he points them to Christ better than pragmatism better than shaming because it is of gospel and of grace to point them to Christ look at what he says when, as he brings them to the compelling core in verses five and six, let her be the compelling core, and the compelling core is, should be no surprise if we know Paul at all, the compelling core is Jesus Christ. Have this way of thinking, he says, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he's talking, he's calling them to a particular way of thinking. And, and that's what this is, There's a a real echo of this. I'll come back to this in a moment. But did you notice how many times he talks about thought or thinking in this section? The whole problem is the way we think. We can't just be manipulated by feelings and experiences. That's not the way God built human beings. Uh, Whereas the Latin phrase homo sapiens, we're supposed to be thinking creatures and what we think and believe is what motivates and pilots us. And so he calls us to a particular kind of thinking, the kind of thinking that was in Christ Jesus, who though existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Oh, see now, there's the part where you usually start. We look at this and it teaches us about Christ. But, but notice verse 5. The reason he talks about Christ is he says, you should think the way he thinks. You should think the way he thought when he became a man for your salvation. And let me explain exactly what I mean by that. And Paul goes on to do exactly that. So let's focus on verse 6 now for a moment. Who although existing in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is what he was through all eternity. Look at that timeless expression. Who though existing in the form of God who, though existing, that, that word existing is kind of a, a more emphatic way, a more robust way of exerting being. It's, it's, as much, it's as much as if to say, though this is what he actually is, although ex, actually existing in the form of God. And this is a, 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 a phrase over which scholars have, have spilled a lot of ink. What exactly does he mean when he say, says the form of God? You, you don't really see God and he's saying he looked like God well that's not really uh, hard, easy to understand. Well I think it's easy to understand what his real point is the form as he uses the word is the expression of the reality the, he, he existed in the form of God because that's who he was and what he's saying is if you were to look at Christ you would see God and, and what is that form? What, what would we have seen if we'd been able to see him? Well we would have seen glory. We would have seen radiance. We would have seen mind-blowing beauty. Think of all of the theophanies in the Old Testament, the appearances of God, and just how they knocked people right to the ground because of the, the radiance and the brightness. And, and, and these were just fringes of his ways, as we read in Job. This is just faint and distant echoes of the glory of, of God's majesty. But that was Jesus. Now, you see, I remind you, in Philippians, you know, it, it, the way you dressed and carried yourself, that mattered a whole lot. And what he's saying is, well, the way Jesus dressed before his uh, conception, the way Christ dressed was in the form of God. If you had looked at Him, you would have seen God. Because that's, that was His actual existence. And this is a timeless existence. We'll talk about this more next week, Lord willing. But Christ is one person with two natures. Now, before the conception, in Mary, he was one person with one nature. He was God the Son. He was the second person of the Trinity. He was the Logos. And this is who we're reading about now. Existing in the form of God. Not existing in bodily form. He did not have a body through all eternity. That began that moment, that split second when Mary ha- uh, carried the, the uh, Lord Jesus in his first moment of existence as a man. But before that, he simply existed in the form of God. And everything that you could say about God, you could say about Jesus. Everything that was true of God. Uh, I'm going to keep slipping and saying Jesus because that is the person we're talking about. But it's a little anachronistic because he, he was not named Jesus until he was born as a man. He was the Christ, he was the Son of God, he was the second person of the Trinity. But he existed in the form of God. And then we read on, though he existed in the form of God, a, a way of a, a concessive participle, Those participle. though this was true, he did not required, re, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So the thing to notice, first of all, is the equality with God is something that he has. It was already his. Um, there's a way in Greek that, that Paul could have said he didn't regard it a thing to be grasped to become equal with God. But he doesn't say that. The way he says it would be better expressed being equal to God, because that's what he was. He was equal to God, he was uh, the same substance as the confessions say, as God. He was equal to the Father in Godhood in every way. He was equal to the Spirit in Godhood in every way. He was equal to God. He expresses this more than once in in his incarnation. Uh, John 5.23, you could just jot down. John 5.23, Jesus says it is the Father's will that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Honor the Son even as, as an equal, in other words, with the Father. Honor him equally with the Father. Or, of course, the very brief expression in John ten thirty, 30, uh, very literally translated, I and the Father, we are one. So they're distinct persons because he says we, but they are one in their essence. He is of one substance with the Father. He is equal to the Father. And this is why the Jews went to stone him because, what do they say? You, being a man, make yourself what? Equal to God. Well, yeah, they're right about that. They're only wrong about thinking that he wasn't equal to God. He was indeed equal to God. He existed in the form of God, and he was equal to God, but he did not regard it a thing to be grasped. He did not regard it a thing to be exploited, that, that he would insist And you see here, you begin to see the real application to the people Paul is writing to. He didn't insist on remaining in that untrammeled dignity and majesty, and not soiling himself by lowering himself in any way, which is a very good thing, sinner, don't you think? Because if he'd been unwilling to lower himself in any way, where would we be, on our way to hell? Because that's what the incarnation is. It's an infinite lowering of himself. We'll dwell on that more next week. But the Nicene Creed said it very well because one of the first uh, big debates, well, the big focus of debate after the New Testament was on the nature of Christ. And there were the Arians who said he's not of the same substance of the Father and he was created by the Father. He's his first creation. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are similar. They're not the same. They're kind of their own weird thing. But um, similar in saying that he was created by God and he was God's first great creation. And so opposing that and affirming what Scripture teaches, the Nicene Creed says that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of his Father, of the substance of the Father. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, or true God of true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both which be in heaven and in earth. So, this is the truth of who Jesus timelessly, I say Jesus again, but the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, timelessly is, he who was born as Jesus, the God-man, He existed in the form of God. He was equal to God. But the application is all in what we do or do not think. That's why he's focusing on this. I'll point you back to verse 2. He says, Fulfill my joy that you think the same way, thinking on one purpose. And then look at verse 5. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality, a different word, but still the idea he did not estimate, he did not count equality with God as a thing simply to exploit selfishly. So what I'm asking, Paul Paul is saying here then, in applying this truth, he's saying, what I am asking you to do in not being motivated by vainglory and selfishness, in putting others ahead of yourself, in being of one mind and a common agenda for the gospel, one spirit, what I am asking you to do, you may look at that and you may say, oh, I think that might require me to take a step down. And Paul is saying, what I'm asking you to do, if it it involves a step down, is infinitely less than what Jesus did. You have to lower yourself. We're talking about you having to lower yourself by this little bit and to become man for our salvation the second person of the Trinity lowered himself from the infinite majesty of the infinite God to be contracted into the space of a little baby, a little weak helpless dependent baby so am I calling you to do that much? The world would think so yes, but set up against what Christ did for us, am I asking you to do much? I'm asking you to think the same way Paul says so that's the exposition of the verse. Now I want to step back, uh, Roman numeral 2, and come at this a little differently than I think we ever have in giving you an explanation and an expansion of what we're looking at here. How could a monotheistic Pharisee write what he just wrote? I mean, do, you, do you feel that? Do you think that? Paul, uh, a, an avid, passionate, monotheistic, only one God, Pharisee, just wrote that Jesus Christ as to his divine nature eternally existed in the form of God. So that makes God the Father and that makes God the Son. How could he write that without stuttering or without acting like it was even giving off that it was a particularly strange thing that he was writing? Well, let me set the stage for you by calling you to Luke 24, 25, and 26. And whether you turn to these depends on how fast a flipper you are. We're not going to focus on these, but we need to set these set the table this way. Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. And here Jesus, after his resurrection, joins two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And they're talking, you know, and he joins them and he asks them what they're talking about. And because uh, they're looking sad. And he says, they say to him, are you the only person here who hasn't heard about what's going on about Jesus and we had such hopes for him verse 21 we'd hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel but he was killed and he was buried and it's been three days and what does Jesus say does he say oh you know I feel you, brothers I really feel you. I, I, this is very discouraging I, I, I can see why you're so heartbroken you know anybody would be heartbroken is that what Jesus says not quite <laughs> look at verse 25 oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself now i want to combine that with the next turn to john chapter 5 verses 45 through 47 if you're turning with me or tapping your screen with me, as the case may be. And Jesus here is having a, a, a conflict with the Jews. And they're, they're arguing with him, as usual. And he, they think that they're such experts of Scripture. And so here's, here's the real climax here. He says in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses! Moses! What? (laughs) Not the name they expected to hear. Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So I single these out just to show you that to Jesus' thinking, the Old Testament pointed forward to him. To, To preach himself, he didn't turn to the Gospel of John. He turned to the Old Testament to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. And beginning with Moses and in all the prophets, he showed them the things written of him. And here in John chapter 5, he says, well, I know you pride yourself on being students of Moses. But if you really believe Moses, you believe in me. Now, I want to make some points about that before we put this into um, practice. Some people look at this, some some good-minded Christians, good brothers, good sisters, they look at this and they develop a way of reading the Old Testament that is Christocentric. And that everything in the Old Testament they make to be about Christ, Christocentric. It's all centered in Christ. You you see this kind of revealed in the little joke of... um, Mrs. Thompson, who'd been teaching the same Sunday school class for 45 years, fell sick one Sunday, and a green-use substitute took her place that Sunday. And she didn't know these children, and she thought it would be easy to make a rapport with them uh, by just starting with something really easy. So she just brought pictures of animals. And she held up this one animal, and it was a picture of a squirrel. And she said, all right, what's this? Dead silence. Nobody would talk. And she she was kind of... Surprised at this. Is, no, really, what's this? Can you see this? What is this? Finally, a little boy hesitantly raised his hand, and he says, well, it looks like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of the way this mindset makes people approach the Old Testament. They feel obliged to make everything be about Jesus. Now, on the other pole is Christian scholars and pastors you'll read and hear who say, well... You would not have read the Old Testament and, and all the verses that they use. They don't really use them right. I mean, they don't really mean what the apostles and Jesus make them mean. But now that Jesus has come, we can see putting that meaning into those words, you know. But we only see that in light of the Christ event. It, it wasn't really there. I mean, you know, nobody could have been expected to see that. See, my trouble, though, with that, although it's very uh, influential, is I have a lot of trouble getting that out of what Jesus says in John chapter 5. If, if that were true, what he should have said to them in John chapter 5 is, you know, I can't blame you for not knowing who I am. Nobody could. <laughs> You'd never see me if you read Moses. I, I wasn't there. But you have to put on these special glasses that I'm giving you so that you can, you know, they've kind of got me on the glasses so that when you read the page, ah, oh, now you see me because I'm on the glasses. But he doesn't say that at all he says if you believe Moses you'd believe me it was clearly Jesus thought that the Old Testament pointed to him so I would say a better way to see it is rather than Christocentric it's Christotelic meaning that the Old Testament points to Christ the truths are fulfilled in Christ or the way I'm going to show it to you there are a lot of things in the Old Testament that you will read and you, you read them and you'll just go huh say that with me one time huh Huh, and, and, and you notice it, and it's there. But then when Jesus comes, then you say, oh, exactly, exactly. I'm going to show you exactly what I'm talking about. And then there are other things that are just straight up, just straight up, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. And the timing set in Daniel 9, they're just straight up. They're, they're, you have to want to miss them. Uh, and obviously they did. But a lot of things, it, and, and when Luke 24 says he went to Moses and the prophet, he doesn't mean every verse Is a prophecy of Messiah, but he's pointed to all over the Old Testament. I'm just going to show you a few examples and take on a brief little tour about that with a particular focus on the deity because that just has to surprise you that of all the things the early church fought about, they fought about the calendar, they fought about circumcision, law of Moses, and all this, but you don't see a huge controversy about the deity of Christ. And you would think that would be the big one, that how can Christ be God? And yet, see, well, they all start there, but they're trying to work out exactly where Moses fits and the laws fit and all these other little things. So how could they be that? How could it be that they these monotheistic Jews came to accept the fact that Christ was God? So I want to show you that. I want to do that with you. So uh, just like Jesus did... <laughs> I wish, just like Jesus did. Wouldn't you you like to have been one of those disciples with your phone and your recorder on when he was teaching them on the the Emmaus Road? But um, as Jesus did, beginning with Moses, I'd like to begin with Moses. What's the first book Moses wrote? Thank you for reminding me. And where is that? Well, that's right after the book of contents. Uh, So turn to Genesis chapter 1. And I just want to show you something that somebody reading this in Hebrew for the first time, who'd not already been told what it has to mean, things that he would notice. Now, here we have in, in English, we have, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What can you possibly make out of that? So it starts off with three words in Hebrew, uh, b'greshith, bara, elohim. The first word is a real simple compound, b, is a preposition we translate In. Resith is beginning, start. So in beginning, at the start. And then the next is a verb, bara. he created. And the third word is Elohim. Now that's, that's where I want to start. If he knew anything at all about Judaism or the Old Testament, and he gets to that word Elohim, there's a funny thing about that word. It's a plural form. Now you ask anyone who knows Hebrew, and he'll tell you that. Now, he'll probably immediately say, but, 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 but. Let's just start with the fact it is a plural verb. It's a plural noun. It is plural and form. Elohim, I mean, you've heard words like seraphim. That means more than one seraph. Cher- cherubim, more than one cherub. And on and on. That im is a masculine plural ending. And here's this word Elohim. And you say, well, was there a singular? Yeah, Eloah. That's singular, Eloah. And that's words in the Old Testament. Or a similar word, El, God. That's in the Old Testament. But here's a plural word. So you say, okay, so you're saying, should that be translated gods? And I say, oh no, you can't do that. Why? Because of the second word. bara. What is bara? It is a third person singular. cal perfect of the word bara, And it, so it means he or it created. So you've got a plural noun, but you've got a singular verb. And that just kind of makes you say, huh. Huh, that's interesting. So the word that the Old Testament uses for God over and over and over again is a plural word, but then there's, but it's not saying gods because the verb is singular. But then read the next verse. The earth was without form and void, and then read the next verse, verse 3. And uh, Pardon me, back to verse 2, I'm sorry. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God in verse 1 and the Spirit of God in verse 2. Huh, that's just kind of interesting. Now hold your place there and skip to Deuteronomy 6 because you would get there in your reading as a first time read through of the Hebrew Old Testament knowing nothing about it. You get to Hebrews 6.4 and here's the, the confession of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And so you'd see Yahweh Eloheinu, well, that's plural. I mean, if you just wanted to to do it in the most boneheadedly, woodenly, literal way, Yahweh are gods, although obviously that's not what he's saying, because he then says Yahweh is one. And that's an interesting thing, because there's different ways of saying one in Hebrew. But the word he picks for one here is something that can be used of a, a compound kind of unity. Like it's used of one cluster of grapes. From the land. Well, is that one grape? No, it's one cluster, but what's the cluster made up of? Grapes. It's one cluster. It's a compound unity. It's not just like a, a marble, it's a compound thing. So Yahweh, our gods, very woodenly, and I would never translate it that way, I'm just saying that's in the text. Yahweh is one. Okay, then we come back to chapter one. This is, this is being very curious, and we read on. And we get to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. That makes you say, huh, let us make, oh, that must be the, the royal we like in England. Yeah, like, like in England 5,000 years later or whatever it was, 6,000 years later, because you don't, there's no royal we in the Old Testament. That's an English thing, that's not an Old Testament, that's not a Hebrew thing. So what is us? Oh, he's doing it with the angels. No, we're not created in the likeness of angels. (laughs) No, and he says in Isaiah, I created by myself. No one helped me. Oh, so it can't be angels. So who's this us? Let us create man in our image. Well, look, here we are. We're just in the first chapter of, of the Bible, and we've already got like two or three. Huh. Now, just let me give you, for instance, now, spoiler alert, let's cheat and turn to the last chapter in the Bible. Which I always remind you is not concordance, but it's Revelation chapter 22. And look at the end of Revelation 22, and look at verses 12 and 13. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, it's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. You know, were we're only up to Omicron on, uh, in COVID. <laughs> but anyway, lots of letters left. Uh, I'm sorry, I digress. Forgive me. I am, uh, the jury will disregard that last part. And please strike it from the record. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Who's talking? Who's coming soon in this book? Jesus is. Verse 20, surely I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Okay, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So chapter 1 makes you say, huh. And you look at this and you say, oh. (laughs) Seems so that's exactly what I'm talking about. So as we're back in Genesis 1, look at chapter 3, verse 22. This is after the fall. This is after the curses have been pronounced. And God says, Yahweh God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Knowing good and evil. Well, there it is again. It wasn't just a one-off weird thing. One of us. Turn to chapter 11. This is about the Tower of Babel. Chapter 11, we'll look at verses 7 and 8. So God, looking at these people who are uniting to make their own kingdom to disobey him who told them to scatter and rule for his name, but they want to stay together and rule for their name. Verse 7, come let us go down, God says. Come let us go down, and they're confused their language. Verse 8, so Yahweh dispersed them from there. Us is going down, but Yahweh does it. Huh. So there's more. Now, those verses we've seen hint at a plurality in God, in some way, using a plural noun, using us, and there are a lot of other things. This is just this is a whirlwind tour. <clears throat> but now turn to chapter uh, sixteen, and let me show you another thing. Chapter sixteen, verses six through eleven. So here is Sarai and Hagar, and Hagar's been kicked out, cruelly treated, cruelly kicked out. And so she's out in the wilderness, and look at verse 7. The angel of Yahweh, and I just remind you, the word angel does not mean created being. The word means messenger. It's just that almost all messengers are created beings. But is this one a created being? Well, we have to read on. The, The angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water and says something to her. I'm just picking out things. And the angel of Yahweh in verse 10 says, I will surely multiply your offspring. What a weird thing for an angel to say. I can't think of any place where an angel is going to to make wombs produce or, or create life. I, I can't think of anything. I don't think I've found any. I will multiply your offspring. And then he says in verse 11, You will name him Ishmael because Yahweh has listened to your affliction. So he talks like he is Yahweh and he talks about Yahweh. Like in one way he is Yahweh and in another way he's distinct from Yahweh. But look at what we read in verse 13 and this is the comment of the writer as well as Hagar. So she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. So the writer says this angel of Yahweh was the angel of Yahweh and he was Yahweh. So there's only one God but there's Yahweh and there's the angel of Yahweh. Huh. That's something isn't it? Does that ever happen again? Oh, it happens a number of times. We'll just look at one more. Look at chapter 22, a very famous incident where uh, Yahweh calls Abram to sacrifice uh, Isaac. So 22 verse 1, God tested Abram and said, Abraham, here I am. Verse 2, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain I'll tell you of. Okay, and we just drop our eyes down because we're just looking for certain things. Abraham in verse 10 is about to kill Isaac, but verse 11, the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He, who he, he, who he, verse 12, the angel of Yahweh said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son from me huh God me he speaks as if he's God because he had no part of this it was God who called him to offer him and not to offer him to an angel but he speaks of God and he speaks as God and there it is again there's something plural about the one God he is one in one way but you keep saying he's he's more than one in another way how do you puzzle this out? Well, we begin with Moses, and a lot more could be said, but we've got to move on. And the prophets, Jesus said, beginning with Moses and the prophets. Now, when he d- divides uh, the Old Testament that way, the prophets just takes in everything else. Uh, Psalms, Proverbs, and the prophets per se, just, it's just all taken in there. So let's go, uh, number two, the prophets. Let's go to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. And this is about the king. Verse 1 says, I address my verses to the king. The psalm is about the king. But we're just going to look at verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your throne, O God... Your God has anointed you. Huh. So on the one way this messianic king is God, but God is the God of this messianic king. There's only one God, but we're seeing two persons who are God. And wait, there's more. To take you to more familiar Christmas ground, turn to Isaiah 7. I just remind you, this great sign that God picks, and Ahaz won't pick a sign, God picks a sign He's going to make a, a virgin with child, and uh, verse fourteen: the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, or to say it Hebrewly, Immanuel. Ale. What does that mean? God with us. Imanu means with us. Ale, singular, means God. God with us. This child will be called. God with us now somebody immediately say well that just means that he signifies that God is present with them it could yeah it could in isolation but we've already seen a bunch of things that make us think that there's a second person to God and that the Messiah is that second person right Psalm 45 and now turn to chapter 9 verse 6 and more familiar Christmas words I, it's hard to read this and not sing it. For now unto us. But for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Mighty God is what he'll be called. Because that's what he is. I hear Jehovah's Witness would say, Oh, yes, he's, he's Mighty God. If any, have you ever talked to any of them? He's Mighty God, but he's not... Not Almighty God. That's what they'll say. Is that a good argument? No. Look at chapter 10, verse 21. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Same Hebrew words. El Gibor. And who is that mighty God? Oh, we just have to go up one verse. They will lean on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. So the mighty God is Yahweh, and this Messiah will be mighty God. So he will be Yahweh somehow given as a son of the line of David so that he can sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Wow, this just gets more and more interesting, doesn't it? How many huns do we have? And this is just a selective tour, but wait, there's one more. Turn to Jeremiah 23. It's right after Isaiah. Isaiah. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. I'll just read it from the LSB. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will, be, will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. He will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. So to to sum this all up, and I'm, I'm going to come to that in just a second, the Old Testament is crystal clear on one thing. There is only one God. Isaiah says that over and over again. Where was there another God formed before me or after me? I don't know of any. There's only one God. And yet at the same time, in some way, that one God is two, three persons. He's the angel of Yahweh, he's the Messiah. And also we read about the Spirit of God. We're just not looking at the verses about Him besides Genesis 1-2. And this last one we're just looking at, it's not the last one in the Old Testament, Yahweh our righteousness. So an honest reader would just have to say, huh, and by the end of the Old Testament he's got a lot of, huh. He just doesn't know how to put together. I mean, they're there and there are a lot of question marks and he's not sure how to assemble them. And then when you get to the New Testament, all of those huhs just become one great big oh. I mean, let's just start with the last one. Look at 1 Corinthians one thirty. His name will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. And Paul, monotheistic, pharisaical Jew, says, And because of him, that is God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is Yahweh, our righteousness. That's how he can be called that because that's who he is. So I've just given you an exposition and I want to close Roman numeral three with an exaltation because with the coming of Christ, as I say, our huh turns into a big oh and then that oh turns into wow as we just marvel at who Jesus is. So first closing the loop then, let just do it, turn to John chapter 1. We first looked at words that say, in the beginning, God's, ouch, created, he created, the heavens and the earth. And now in John 1, 1, we see in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Well, there it is. There's only one God and there's this one who is the Word who at the same time is God and he's distinct from God because he's face-to-face with God. He is one with him, as as the Nicene Creed says, in his essence. But as to his person, there's the person of the Father, the person of the Son, the person of the Holy Spirit. So here and then the, the impact is at the end of this Gospel, John 20, next to last chapter, John 20, 28... It's, it's come to be this is really the only verse I go to with the Jehovah's Witness I've, I've been all around with them but I just stay with this John twenty twenty eight. Thomas answered him and said my Lord and my God now what would you do if someone said that to you? get up and get a grip are you crazy? are you nuts? I mean did you take a, a crazy pill? No, none, no one of us would accept that but what does Jesus say? basically he says It took you this long to get there? He accepts his worship because he is Lord and God. So the huh becomes oh! Because The Old Testament, yes, of itself, not cheating, not playing games, it points forward to a divine Messiah, a Messiah who is God. I don't have to put on Jesus' glasses. I just need to read the whole Bible. And it's like a a movie that, in my mind, is a really brilliant movie. I won't name it in case you haven't seen it because I don't want to give it away. But you watch the whole movie one way, and then the last five minutes of the movie completely turns it on its head. Just completely changes everything you saw, that you thought you saw, that you thought you understood. The last five minutes changes everything. And then you go back and you watch it and you say, yeah, I was all there. I just didn't see it because I was reading it in one mind. I was watching it in one mind and and now I know this. So could a person stubbornly say, well, I just reject the ending because I know I was right. I know I saw that right. I know what it meant. Well, yeah, he could. (laughs) But then he wouldn't be seeing what the creator of it wanted him to see. And that's what I'd say about people who reject the New Testament. You can reject it and come up with all sorts of answers for all these huhs. You can come up with all sorts of things. This is how you deal with it. Turn it into something that's not a huh, even though it it really is. But you put the New Testament and they're all perfectly clear. Then you go back and you read. You don't read anything in. I love the way B.B. Warfield puts it. He says the Old Testament is like a dark, richly furnished room. You can just dimly see some of the things in that room. But when the New Testament turns the light on, you see what was there all along. It doesn't put anything new in the room. You just suddenly realize and understand what was there all along. So, it's closing the loop, letter B, seeing the truth. The truth is that this makes Jesus fully God, which is to say everything that God is, God the Son is. Everything you could say about God the Father as God, you say of God the Son. Is God the Father everywhere present? Then God the Son is everywhere present. Is God the Father love? Then God the Son is love. Is he holy? Then God the Son is holy. Is he all-powerful? Then God the Son is all-powerful. And this is an important thing that will help us next week. Everything God is, God always is at the same time and always will be. Now, at the same time, that sounds kind of simple, and it also makes you kind of dizzy. But God's attributes don't rise and fall. Everything He is, He is all the way at the same time, always. Here's the thing about being God. If you never weren't God, sorry, too late, you never will be. Because God is eternal and immutable. He never changes. He's always who He is, and He always will be. So if one ever wasn't God, He never will be. And if one can stop being God, then He never was. Because it's a characteristic of God. So when we read in the verses that come that Christ emptied himself, does that mean he stopped being God? You can't do that. It can't be done. And and you can't make one attribute of God over, I know well-meaning people try to say like holiness, that's the central attribute of God. There's no central attribute of God. God's not pieces. He's not a Lego structure. He's not composed of pieces. And the holy piece is bigger than the other pieces. He is everything he is all the time, all the way. His holiness is is a loving holiness. His righteousness is a merciful righteousness. Everything he is, he is at the same time. And therefore, that is true of God the Son. What must you think of Jesus if you believe this? Does this elevate our view of Christ? It elevates our view of Christ. He is God the second person. Now I want to try to, in closing, feel the impact of this. Let her see. Feel the impact that obviously in becoming a child, he necessarily remained fully God. This one person obviously cannot give up his deity. That, that can't be done. You can't stop being God. He didn't give up anything. He added something. And what he added was he added an infinitely lesser thing, a human nature. So this one person now has two natures, a nature that is pure and perfect deity and a nature that is pure and perfect humanity. So I say we'll talk more about that next week. But this is an infinite step down. It's as if a race car driver were to, to go on a bicycle with trainer wheels. I don't, know, I don't know a perfect way to put this. But it is an infinite step down. And he did it for our salvation. Because to atone for sinners required a human nature. And required blood to shed. And obviously God does not have a human nature. And what else does God not have? Blood. And yet Acts 20.28, 20, Acts 20.28 20, talks about the church of God which he purchased with his blood. The church of God which he purchased with his blood. Now does the infinite God have blood? No. But does God the Son have blood? Yes. Because he became, a, he became flesh And dwelt among us for our salvation. Now, with that in mind, this is what Paul is calling us to see. We focused on the eternal state of who Christ is. Next week we'll focus on what he became. But Paul is saying, You think you have to maybe squat down just a little bit to love each other, and you feel like that's a big thing I'm asking you to do? You feel like my calling you to have humble mindedness is a big ask? Let me tell you about a big ask. Let me tell you about the biggest ever. Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with a God with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself. Taking on the form of a slave. Humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. Think that way when you see each other, Paul says. Think that way. So, now come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. And the first step in adoring him is to come to saving faith in him, to repent, believe in him as Lord and God, trust him alone for salvation, bow the knee before him, call on him to be your Lord and Savior. If you've not, I urge you to. But continue to adore him by thinking as he did, not walking in pride and self-serving, but learning to walk in his kind of sacrificial love. Like him, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself for our sake and for our salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. What a brilliant, amazing, powerful revelation it is. Thank you for speaking to us and parting the veils of darkness that we might see your glory. And We pray that you will burn your words on our heart and that we will learn that... Uh, that your truth is thrilling, your truth is everything, because it shows us you and shows us how to know you. We pray that Christ will be exalted among us, that all who believe in him will learn to think the way Jesus thought, and so that we can strive together with one spirit in lowliness of mind regarding each other as more important than ourselves. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, would you... uh Please stand.